Hello and welcome to this episode of Climate 201 from Physical Attraction. And in this series of episodes, we're going to be talking about energy efficiency. It's one of the key pillars in any attempt to help mitigate the effects of climate change and reduce our CO2 emissions. But what is energy efficiency? What can it do for us? And what has it done for us so far? So as we've talked about on previous episodes, energy efficiency is chronically underappreciated in the popular accounting when it comes to solutions for climate change. People tend to think first and foremost, and advertise first and foremost, new technologies like solar, wind, or even nuclear fusion, or new types of nuclear fission, as climate solutions that will generate more power. Others might argue that what is needed is a wholesale change to the kind of lifestyle we're leading, the activities that we're undertaking, and so on. In the context of all of this, energy efficiency, simply not wasting what we do produce, can often get the short end of the stick. For that reason, I'm going to structure this little series of episodes a little bit differently. I'm going to sort of present the case from the point of view of an efficiency cornucopian. Someone who is essentially of the opinion that energy efficiency is the main thing we need to do to solve most of our problems. And then, having kind of made that case, I'm going to point out the objections, the flaws and the problems that would need to be addressed by the efficiency cornucopians. And I want to do it this way because I've seen an excellent series of talks by probably one of the most prominent efficiency cornucopians out there, Amory Lovins of the Rocky Mountain Institute. He's worked in the field of energy policy for many years now, taught at 10 universities, won virtually every prize in the book and so on and so forth. And his basic contention is that both climate and economic modelers massively underestimate the potential for energy efficiency, both in the past and the future and that future developments in energy efficiency, alongside the falling price of renewables, will more or less solve the climate change and energy demand issues by themselves. Now, personally, I happen to think that this is an optimistic worldview, as you can probably tell, probably over-optimistic, but in terms of having an advocate who will fight the extreme end of a case, he does a good job, and I would recommend seeing his talks to see what I mean exactly. So let's start with a pretty eye-opening fact. Between 1975 and 2016, energy efficiency savings have saved perhaps 30 times as much energy as new renewable generation has generated. Of course, remember that energy is not the same as electricity. So globally in 2017, you had approximately 25% of electricity generation coming from renewables, including hydropower, around 10% from nuclear, and around 65% from fossil fuels. But in terms of our primary energy consumption, which includes the energy for heating, transportation, etc., the figures were more like 6% of our energy coming from renewables, and another 6% coming from traditional biofuels, which generally means burning wood and things like that, with coal, oil and natural gas between them, accounting for 87% of the total primary energy that we use. So in terms of raw terawatt hours, a good rule of thumb is that our primary energy consumption is currently around 10 times our final electricity consumption globally. This is partly because when you put primary energy in, coal in your power plants for example, you can only convert a fraction of that to useful final electricity out. And it's partly because, as mentioned, many things that we use energy for, such as heating and transportation, are not fully electrified. So these figures can be a little bit misleading. Indeed, sometimes people who are anti-renewables will compare these energy figures as if they're all alike, when actually energy from wind and solar, which starts off as electricity, is clearly worth more than coal as a primary input if you burn that coal to reduce electricity. So, you know, because it basically takes you three units of energy stored in coal to produce one unit of electricity because of the thermal inefficiency of coal-fired power plants. So you can see that you can't compare them like for like, 
and that the fact that the energy from wind and solar comes in the form of electricity, which is kind of higher grade organised energy, which we can use to complete tasks more easily compared to low grade thermal energy from burning, which isn't that useful. Nevertheless, what these figures are relevant for is for the raw consumption of fossil fuels, which is what's most relevant for climate change, and how rapidly the increased use of renewables is actually reducing our consumption of fossil fuels. When viewed in this context, a world where globally our primary energy consumptions and energy inputs are still around 87% fossil, you can see why learning to use that primary energy more efficiently is crucial, and has so far had a larger impact than renewables on reducing CO2 emissions. You can also think of this in terms of Kaya decomposition, if you like. This is this idea of breaking down carbon emissions into carbon emissions per unit energy, energy per unit GDP, GDP per person, and population. Clearly, while renewables and electrification tackle the carbon emissions per unit energy lever, energy efficiency, ideally, targets the energy per unit GDP lever. So you're having the same amount of economic activity as you did before, if you like, but you're consuming less energy. The point that an efficiency cornucopian like Amory Lovins would make, and I would agree, is that energy efficiency is a win-win. He says, quote, The cheapest, cleanest, and best source of energy is needing less of it in the first place. Of course, you're literally doing more with less by eliminating waste. In that way, you're obviously saving money and resources that are being used to obtain or extract that energy, as well as reducing the negative cost to the environment of pollution. And it also becomes easier to imagine changes to the energy system to eliminate polluting fuels when the system itself is smaller. Now, there's been lots of controversy in recent months and years surrounding the environmental impact that the build-out of renewables would have on the energy system. And while it is not true to say that building renewables results in a higher carbon footprint than using fossil fuels, that's, that's simply very untrue, and life cycle analyses are done on a regular basis to demonstrate this sort of thing. It certainly is true that the manufacture of solar panels and wind turbines is not without an environmental impact of its own. The manufacture of batteries and solar panels and so on, mostly batteries really, puts a lot of pressure on rare earth metals and things of this nature. The point being, if you can use energy more efficiently, you will reduce the environmental impact of harnessing that energy in the first place, regardless of how you do it, and regardless of what that environmental impact is. So it's obviously something that anyone who is interested in the environment and keeping the human impact on the environment below these limits that are set by our ecology and our desire not to destroy should be interested and concerned with ways that we can use the energy that we have more efficiently. Between 1975 and 2016, then, there has been some progress in decoupling economic growth from raw energy use. So in the US, producing a dollar of GDP in 2016 required 50% less energy, 60% less oil, 63% less natural gas, and 20% less electricity than it did in 1975. So obviously part of this is down to more efficient uses of energy. I would also argue that part of it is down to a shift from a manufacturing to a services economy in those years, which is similar to what has happened to Europe. So you can see there that, obviously, if you have less industrial manufacturing making those dollars of your GDP, and more in industries like entertainment, law, financial services, or whatever it would be, then you can get the same things with less energy. 
But again, it, it does kind of bear out this idea that you can produce economic growth using energy more efficiently, or at the very least, using less energy. So in this factoid or statistic that 30 times more carbon emissions have been avoided by efficiency savings than renewables, Lovins is really arguing about a counterfactual world, where we continue to be as inefficient at creating dollars of GDP using energy as our raw input as we were in 1975. Now obviously this is a bit of a technicality here, because you can argue about whether or not that world is really feasible or a fair comparison. I mean, for example, if we were still using energy as inefficiently as we did in 1975, would it even be possible for us to have an economy the size that it is today? Similarly, you can say that this is a little bit misleading because, you know, such a world where we produced this much GDP in a very energy intensive way wouldn't exist in the way that it does at the moment. And that's all very fair. But what I wouldn't argue with is Lovins's contention that the energy efficiency resource is far from being fully exploited at the moment. And there's plenty of room to do things more efficiently, which we often don't focus on with our fascination with innovation and new technologies and building great brand new projects and so on, and, and less on uh, the so-called unsexy things like replacing your windows with double glazing and all this sort of thing. So in this next series of episodes, then, I want to go through all of the different sectors that are big emitters of carbon dioxide. And I want to talk about some of the ways that we can use energy more efficiently in these sectors. A lot of this comes from Reinventing Fire, which was the book that the Rocky Mountain Institute came up with as their plan to grow the US economy and wean it entirely from oil and coal by 2050. And we're going to start with energy efficiency in vehicles. Now, one interesting point to make with vehicles is that two-thirds of the energy needed to move an automobile depends on its weight. So economies in the weight of the vehicle is the first thing that can save a large amount of money. In fact, if you want to get right down to it, the, the important thing to understand with energy efficiency is to imagine, if you ever did in school, a Sankey diagram, which is one of those diagrams where you start with a big arrow at the start, and that's your input energy. And then along the way, there's lots of different processes that waste the energy. And there's a very, very tiny amount that gets to the end, which is your actual useful levels of energy that you've got out of it. So, for example, in a car, you can argue that just 0.5% of the energy in fuel burned is actually doing what you want it to do. Because just 0.5% of the energy in the fuel burned is actually used to propel the people inside the car. And ultimately, the whole point of having the car is to be able to propel people around. That's the idea. But once you account for things like the inefficiency in the engine, the accessories that are running, the losses when the car is idling and braking, the extra weight that it carries around, all this sort of thing, you only end up with 0.5% of that energy in the fuel being burned that's actually being used to propel people around. Now, obviously, thanks to the laws of thermodynamics, you're never going to be able to convert 100% of the fuel's energy into kinetic energy that propels people inside a car. You can get a lot closer than we do today. And even if you just save a little bit on that road, because only 5 joules out of every 1,000 you put in is actually going into propelling the people around, little savings can make quite a big difference. So one example would be designing cars to economise on steel use, where you have thicker sheets only where they're required for safety. Hydroforming steel is new technology which allows you to create more complex shapes, and that can actually reduce the steel weight by 35% in vehicles, according to the future Steel Vehicle 2020. Cars are increasingly using aluminium, which is around a third as dense of steel. 
and that's happening in vehicles to reduce weight. Now, one thing that vehicles have to contend with is rolling resistance, and modern tyre designs can reduce that as well. And of course we know that we can build cars that are more aerodynamic than your standard models. Anyone who's seen the fancy and sometimes very strange designs of these Formula One cars will know that you can create more aerodynamic cars than we have on the market at the moment. Lovins estimates that simply just by using more lightweight metals and more aerodynamic designs, alongside dropping rolling resistance in the tyres, it could be possible to reduce the fuel use of the cars by around 50% without electrifying the cars at all. But you can actually go even further than this if you're willing to totally redesign how you make cars. Lovins points to a hypercar, which is predominantly made of carbon fibre, which could be both lighter and cheaper to produce than a traditional vehicle. Now there was actually such a car that was designed back in the early 2000s, which would have been 53% lighter and 3.6 times as efficient as the current sort of comparative model with the same levels of power. One key benefit from the use of these carbon fibre cars is that you can have all kinds of weird shapes that are moulded, and therefore reduce the total number of parts that are needed to make the car. So in this hypercar design, you actually only need around 17 different car parts. Well, for an average car that uses metallic parts, there are hundreds of different parts being manufactured. So once you're using carbon fibre, you have a potential to reduce costs in terms of the number of parts that need to be fitted, moulded, finished, manufactured separately, and so on. And there is lots of research going on at the moment in potential to reduce the carbon fibre costs using different precursor materials. Uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratories is one place where this is going on. Now, it's true to say that this is one of the areas where people have been talking about building cars out of carbon fibre for a very long time. And perhaps recently, industry insiders are getting a little bit less enthusiastic about using it as a construction material. This is mainly because, while it might be much more lightweight and strong, the mass manufacturing techniques to use it aren't there yet it still costs around 10 times more than steel in automotive applications. That's come down from 35 times greater though, and of course the point of carbon fibre is that you can use less of it anyway, so if you need half the weight of it, you don't need as much. So it might sound bad that it's 10 times more than steel, but in some ways it's closer to 5 times more and it's still coming down. But we're not, we're not there yet at the stage where it would still be economical to make a carbon fibre car. So demand-side efficiency in transport tends to focus on what we can do to limit our needs for transportation. And this kind of thing is telecommuting, innovative pricing to offset the increased demand at different times, and making up for the reduction in tax revenues from fuels. So there's all these sort of wonky different policies that we can have. I mean, one example is taxes based on miles travelled during peak hours. And even something that has been suggested is locationally efficient mortgages, which would essentially incentivise you to live closer to where you work. But I would point out that the COVID-19 pandemic is quite likely to have a lasting impact here in terms of shifting the general culture towards working from home where you can, using less transportation, and having actually meetings that could be done over the internet being done over the internet far more often than they would be otherwise. And it's illustrated how big and how difficult some of these social shifts can be, but only time will tell how much of this is really going to be permanent. Now, we're not really even getting on to the major issue here, which people talk about, which is public transportation. But obviously, when it comes to the basic goal, converting energy, whether it's from fossils or otherwise, into the movement of people, it's just far more efficient to go by train or bus than it is to privately own your own car. Similarly, improvements in logistics, route planning and miles driven are all trends that are likely to continue, facilitated by algorithms and desires to cost save and all sorts of things like that. 
As usual, Lovins will argue that these efficiency measures would, if implemented, save around $4 trillion and help reduce oil use to zero by 2050. This episode of Physical Attraction is sponsored by Podcorn. Some of you out there may be fellow podcasters, e.g. if you're in our Science Podcasts Facebook group. If so, you'll know the extraordinary amount of work that has to go into researching, writing, recording and editing your own show. If you're a small indie show like this one, getting sponsorships to make what you do even remotely sustainable can be tough. Podcorn are aiming to change that. It's a place where podcasters can go to pitch ad space on their shows to people who might want to work with them. One advantage to this is you do get to pick who you work with. I know other shows use dynamic insertion, which is done by their podcasting company, and therefore they end up filled with extremely ironic ads for people they've just criticised. This way I can filter out neoclassical economists, fossil fuel companies, any governments that I've criticised, and flat earthers. So it's all good. If you're a podcaster and you want to find out more, check out the Podcorn link in our show notes. And thanks for listening to this and helping me buy more caffeine. One reason to pick on private car ownership in particular, though, is because I think that cars are really a classic example of where Lovins' efficiency cornucopianism runs into real-world problems. You have to look at this from perspective of models versus how things pan out in the real world. In our models, especially economic models, to simplify things, we often assume that people are perfectly well-informed. In this model, you can come up with all kinds of ways of doing things more efficiently. Your perfectly well-informed humans will see that, say, ah, clearly it will save me money through efficiency, and it will save the environment at the same time, so why wouldn't I switch to a more efficient type of car and make long-term savings? No such perfect homo economicus rational actor is going to voluntarily drive around in a ridiculously inefficient and expensive car. They'd get a cheap, efficient alternative, save money on fuel, wear and tear for the car, and reduce air pollution at the same time. In a world run by Lovins's logic, everyone would immediately leap to build and buy the most fuel-efficient cars possible to make. But we know that they don't. In reality, people are motivated by other factors when they purchase things, which explains why SUVs alone are responsible for the second biggest contribution to the rise in emissions over the 2010s. There's quite an amazing statistic here. The only sector which resulted in more CO2 emissions increase over the last 10 years was power generation. The rest of it, all SUVs, that's the second biggest sector. Why is it that people are choosing to make these apparently irrational decisions? Part of it is, of course, the fact that driving around in these massive cars has become a status symbol, and this is encouraged by car companies. The fact that wealth can be displayed by unnecessary largesse and wasteful extravagance, that's long been a part of many societies. But for SUVs, it has in part been driven by advertising. Again, why? Because selling SUVs is the most profitable part of the business model for many car companies. A recent study showed that trucks and SUVs are the most profitable vehicles for Ford and General Motors to sell. They can make thousands of dollars of profit on a single sale. They actually lose money per unit when they're selling the smaller cars and sedans. And of course, the advertising follows the profit. Between 2016 and 2018, Ford's US advertising shifted from a 50-50 split between SUVs and normal cars to 85% of it on trucks and SUVs. The resulting trend in consumers towards SUVs is a big part of the reason why, in the UK, the average CO2 emissions per kilometre travelled has actually started to tick up again since 2016, after decades of declining. The situation in the US, though, of course, is much worse. The average car sold in the US gets just 25 miles to the gallon. A hybrid, like the 2010 Prius, gets 50 miles to the gallon. But heck, even in 1986, you had a choice between a Chevrolet Sprint at 48 miles per gallon and a Honda Civic at 46 miles per gallon. And the average car sold in the UK in 2018 
had a fuel economy of 50 miles per gallon. Now, there was a futuristic-ish car made by VW in 2015 that got 313 miles to the gallon. Only a few hundred of these cars were ever made, so the price tag was correspondingly much larger. But it's a glimpse of how efficient cars could be if they prioritised efficiency. If we can build a 313 mile per gallon car today, 12 times more efficient than the average, is there any reason why we couldn't have 100 miles per gallon as the norm? Clearly, if automakers had prioritised efficiency all along, we're talking about the average car being multiple times more efficient than the cars that are sold in the US today. Even just getting them up to the standard for new cars in Europe would result in 2.5 times as much efficiency, and consequently, you'd save 60% of the fuel use to drive the same distances. So that would be huge in terms of carbon emissions. And this is the problem with efficiency cornucopianism. In a world where people even remotely prioritise things like efficiency or the damage that's being done to the environment, emissions from transportation would fall rapidly by 50, 60, 70% overnight. Because the technology doesn't need to be invented, it already exists, it's just not evenly distributed. When you look at things like that, people driving around in cars that are so inefficient, you can see why energy efficiency is still such an untapped resource, and why it can seem like the solution to so many different problems. But what it ignores is that people are motivated by other factors, sociological factors that are hard to put into your models, and inertia that makes it difficult to switch to new ways of doing things. Getting massive, unnecessary, hideously inefficient SUVs is seen as a lifestyle and fashion choice. It's a social signifier of high status. People rate cars based on how quickly they can accelerate, and therefore get cars with vastly oversized engines compared to what they need. People don't drive in fuel-efficient ways. They speed and drive inefficiently very often. And people are willing to put up with vastly increased fuel expenses to themselves to do this. In a way, this conspicuous consumption reminds me of how wealthy Romans used to rear fish that loved warm, salty waters many miles inland in colder climates. Raising this particular type of fish as a pet was ridiculously hard. You'd need to employ a whole team of slaves to keep the water warm, supply them with salt water, etc., just so that you could have your exotic fish as pets. But the waste of money was the point. It's illustrating your own wealth that you can afford to be wasteful. And without wanting to ride another one of my hobby horses all the way to the stable again, it just goes to show that the way that technology develops is not inevitable, and it is not universally beneficial. It does not optimise for everything that you'd want it to optimise for, despite the myth-making around it that is drummed into us. People, companies, car companies, have made a choice not to focus on efficiency in the vehicles that they're selling. The average car sold in the US, 25 miles to the gallon, the Model T Ford could almost do that, and that came out in 1908. In a century then, on this metric, despite all of the incredible advances in technology, we've gone precisely nowhere. You can look at this in terms of a sort of technological development point of view and note that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc., cars on average got 11 miles per gallon, which is about the same as a big Hummer today. Then between 1975 and 1985, fuel efficiency shot up by 60% in the US thanks to higher fuel prices from the oil crisis and efficiency standards that were introduced in that decade. It's pretty amazing. You can look at a graph of the average miles per gallon that cars in the US get. It's been a total flat line since 1985 when standards were relaxed until about 2008 when more standards were introduced. Since then there has been barely any progress in the US due to the high subsidies for fuel and low taxes on fuel. What libertarians might call a distorted marketplace. You know, I've had lengthy arguments with people saying, of course the free market will optimise for efficiency and so on. Well, 
not necessarily as this shows it's actually only the regulations that make these changes happen one thing that you have to point out here is that innovation then is actually being driven by the regulations themselves you know it's an interesting story of when they first took these regulations in place in the 80s in the uh, the sort of ford era regulations um the politicians at the time went to the car companies and said you're going to have to build cars that have this level of efficiency and this level of pollution control, or we're not going to allow you to sell our cars. And the car companies kicked up blue murder. They tried to avoid doing They tried to say that it couldn't be done, that it would drive them out of business. And then when the law was passed, they did it. They came up with technology to solve the problem. And when you're trying to come up with technologies to solve a specific problem that's put in your way, you can do some great stuff that you won't necessarily do if your main motivation is, as ever, the profit motive. We've seen how car companies, when they're only motivated by the profit motive, are there trying to sell the most profitable cars, which are these big SUVs and Hummers and so on. And with a little bit of extra motivation, there's no doubt that these car companies would be able to make some unbelievably efficient cars. I mean, we've seen it happen to an extent in Europe already where the restrictions are harsher, and we could see it in the US, and we could see it all over the world if we wanted to. You know, it's interesting... We have lots of these debates about what is the best way to do mitigation of climate change and so on. And one thing that people like to talk about a lot is carbon capture and storage and negative emissions technologies, which we will have episodes on in the future in this series. But one thing that people say is, well, the difficulty you have is that there's actually no market for this stuff at the moment. Um, There's no market for carbon capture and storage uh, because you can't do anything with the carbon. You're essentially just disposing of the waste. And while there's no market, according to the logic by which we run the world at the moment, there's no way that it can ever develop and get more efficient, and therefore there's no way that the price can come down to the point where it might be attractive compared to other options. And there's no way that the industry can scale up to bury the billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide that are going to be necessary for us to mitigate climate change, according to the Paris Climate Accords. But one point that has been made is that you could quite easily create a market, or at least a necessity for it, through regulation. One point that Professor Miles Allen likes to make a lot of the time is that if you were to simply pass a law that said that fossil fuel companies, as the price of doing business, as the price of continuing to operate and sell and produce a product that we know is damaging to the environment and risking all of our long-term future, if you simply told them that they had to bury 1% of the CO2 emissions underground from the development of their product, then they would use their technical might, their engineering might, their research and development budgets, their incredible sort of ability to solve problems. These these companies, these fossil fuel companies that are used, after all, to burying things underground in reverse. Uh, and they would make carbon capture and storage incredibly cheap. So even if you were to just put in this regulation in place that says they need to bury 1% of their resulting emissions, they would quite easily uh, be able to do so and would probably make it cheaper, and would probably make that side of the CO2 uh, problem, that side of the climate problem, a lot easier to solve. Now, of course, then we get into, well, why hasn't this been done? And in fact, there was a bill that was trying to do this, at least in the UK, but it was killed in part thanks to lobbying from that same group of fossil fuel companies. So, you know, you have this intransigent lobby, which is not very keen at all to take any responsibility for the waste and the environmental destruction and devastation that comes from their products. And that has, of course, always been part of the problem. But I digress. Another way of looking at this, of course, is from a consumer choice point of view. I mean, just imagine how incredibly efficient things could be if the real social signifier, the sign of high status, 
was a car that travelled for hundreds of miles while consuming virtually no fuel. Better for the environment, better for your wallet, and less pesky stops for refuelling. And just as innovation and technological development haven't yet fixed all of these problems, there's also this argument that they might not in the future. Innovation and technological development don't occur in a vacuum with no incentive structure around them. They do not occur with no reference to the social and economic systems around them. The reason cars are more efficient in Europe on average is because fuel is more expensive and there are higher regulations. There's more tax on fuel and therefore the balance of incentives for the homo economicus in Europe is different. I think we have this narrative in our minds which implicitly assumes that technology and socio-technical systems are inevitably and invariably improving in every way, which includes in things like energy efficiency. Surely the free market would incentivize building more efficient engines which cost less to run and are therefore more attractive to buy. I genuinely had to have this argument with someone recently. After they'd actually looked at the facts, they changed their argument to, well, the free market optimizes other things as well, and accused me of wanting to live in quote-unquote North Korea, where the energy footprint is low. All I can say is that the march of history has not generally been towards more efficient vehicles uniformly, even as technology has developed, with the exception of the more modern move towards electric cars. Anyone who is interested in demonstrating that the free market can deliver efficiency gains should look into why this is. I have to say, I'm a technological optimist. I think that we have some incredibly uh, innovative technology options that could easily get to these efficiency levels that we're talking about here and save masses on the fossil fuels that we're using at the moment before you even get into electrification, which is the really big deal here. But it's not happening and people need to understand why. And of course, there are other things as well that have great deals of inertia involved in them too. We're talking about things like the layout of cities, the culture of car ownership, the size of the country in the US, the ways people use transportation, and the state of public transportation. So you can't just innovate away all of these problems under the current incentive structures, or innovation and technology would have solved them already. And this is far from a US problem, you know. In the UK, it'll cost you 35 quid for a tank of petrol to drive a family car across the country, cost £100 for a train ticket. I'm someone who doesn't drive and all my transport is by trains and frankly it, it can become prohibitively expensive to get around if you're trying to go from one city to another on the train. <laughs> there, there are even examples that people have pointed out where in the UK it's actually cheaper to go on a plane to Brussels or Amsterdam or something and uh, after your layover you know, fly back to Edinburgh or something rather than getting the train. It's cheaper and faster to do that in some cases. That's obviously incentivizing the less efficient option. That's absurd. And this stands in the way of people making the type of demand-side decisions that are framed as consumer choices. I mean, it's all very well telling people that they should use public transport and make that decision, but if there's no decent public transport infrastructure around you, then you have to own a car to get around, and there's no sense in shaming people for that. If public transport is expensive, you might not be able to use it as often. Part of the issue here is that only a high oil price, and that will probably mean now a carbon tax or a fuel tax, or significant changes to consumer demand, or the business models indeed of the automotive industry, which again requires government policy shifts. Only these things are really likely to make these changes arise, which is why, like so much of the efficiency cornucopian work, it's more important as a utopia to envision than a dystopia to avoid. Envisioning utopia, of course, is still just as important as imagining dystopia, because when you try and imagine how things could be or should be, you get a sense of what obstacles are really in the way. Lovins' book does mention some policy interventions that could make private transportation more efficient. 
One example would be fee baits. This would be rebates for fuel efficient car purchase, fees for less efficient car purchase. One example is the government fleet procurement. So if you're the government and you want fleets to be more energy efficient or electric or hydrogen or whatever, you make sure that everything that you buy as a purchaser is that type of car and that will help uh, encourage this sort of development to occur. Scrappage schemes are another option. These are being led by industry now and not government in the UK, but where the average age of the fleet is older, they might be more appropriate. Looking on the bright side when it comes to private transportation though, the rise of the electric car is going to help massively here. This is for several reasons. The electrification of the drivetrain for cars further increases efficiency and it reduces oil consumption. This is partly because electric engines are simply more efficient than their internal combustion counterparts. Electric engines are typically around 90% efficient at converting electricity to motion, compared to internal combustion engines which are around 33% efficient. The reason why is obvious. You get a lot dissipated as heat when you're trying to convert burning fuel into useful work, in just the same way as you get a similar figure for efficiency when fossil fuel power plants are used to generate electricity. So it's going back to this idea of electricity as high-grade energy that can be used more easily to do a specific task. But the other point I would really make with respect to electric cars is that as we electrify cars, the incentive to make them lighter and more efficient in other ways increases massively. Part of the reason that fossil fuel cars have remained so inefficient is because there's not enough of a penalty for them being inefficient. Fuel, especially in the US and other countries, is cheap enough to waste. Refueling is quick and easy with a very well-developed infrastructure. And the petrol is obviously much more energy dense than the batteries that will replace it. Which means that if you have a Hummer that's guzzling loads of gas, you can simply get a bigger tank of petrol if you want. Having that battery though that now powers the electric car puts a massive premium on energy efficiency because that's now basically translated as the range that the car can get to a single charge, which is the metric that people buying electric cars are most concerned about. You will suffer slightly because your fuel in the form of the battery is heavier than the petrol for the same amount of energy. For electric cars, the battery packs are quite a big source of the weight of the car, and of course a big source of the expense of the car. So you can't have a ridiculously inefficient car that's wasting all of the electricity that you could get there, because eventually you'll run out of space for the batteries, and you'll make the car prohibitively expensive. There will instead be massive rewards for car models that can run really efficiently on electricity. Indeed, if you look at a Model S Tesla versus a car that gets 35 miles to the gallon, you can see that the Tesla actually uses about a third of the energy overall, and I think electric cars can get even more efficient than that. Suddenly, the forces of innovation and ingenuity that we talked about are now working towards creating more efficient cars. Not because they've seen the light that efficiency is excellent and that you need to reduce your energy consumption so that you reduce your footprint on the planet, but simply so that people can drive further on a single charge and ease their range anxiety. And this can only be good for the efficiency of private transport. Personally, as I said, even though I don't drive a car, I'm excited to see how the electrification of cars and other forms of private transport, and public transport hopefully eventually, will enable us to get to levels of efficiency that we couldn't even have dreamed of before. And that can only be good for the planet regardless of where that energy comes from. Although, of course, the other big advantage of electrifying transport is that you can actually get that energy from renewables and you don't need to rely on fossil fuels anymore. It's going to be a big, long road to electrify transport, but it's already starting and people should get with the programme. Thank you for listening to this episode of Climate 201, the first in a mini-series about energy efficiency measures, where we've been talking about energy efficiency in transportation. We're going to talk about other sectors in the next series. I hope that you've been enjoying this episode. 
Remember, there's plenty of ways that you can support the show if you like what we've been doing. On the website, we are physicspodcast.com. There you'll find a contact form. Any comments, questions, concerns, feedback that you have from the episodes, I'd love to hear it. If there's topics you'd like us to cover, if you take issue with something I've said, if you'd like the source for a statistic or anything like that, I'm happy to get in touch with you. Those go to my email. I try to respond to them all. Other ways you can engage with the show, the Twitter, PhysicsPod, the Facebook, Physical Attraction. Again, we'll respond to communications that come through there as well. You can, of course, support the show financially. If you like what we're doing, if you think it's valuable, we have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash physicalattraction. And if you go there, you'll find plenty of early release episodes, uh, bonus episodes that aren't available anywhere else. And for very, very tiny amounts of money, you can support the show that we're doing. If you don't like the Patreon model, we also have a PayPal link, which is up on the website at physicspodcast.com. Every little bit you can do is very, very helpful for me. Helps me pay the running costs of the show. And of course, I think it's just about the principle of supporting the work of creators that you enjoy. Of course, one of the most important things you can do to help is to tell other people who might be interested in this show to listen to it as well. Spreading word of mouth is the best way we have to get people interested and to get people involved. Until next time then, please take care.